Okay, well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to uh, Exodus uh, 25. We're <laughs> at a bit of a fun spot here, looking at the construction of the tabernacle. So much imagery going on that we'll, we're willing to notice uh, week by week. If you'll read ahead, you'll notice that chapters 36 through the beginning part of 40 kind of reduplicate chapters 25 through about 31. Uh, so chapters 25 through 31, we're given, they're given the commands to build and then a couple chapters of kind of interlude, the golden calf incident, some other things, and then the actual recording of the building, which kind of reduplicates what they were told. More on that later, but we're gonna go through these things kind of once and refer to what happens later. And so we'll kind of go through basically chapter 33 and then make a leap over to chapter 40. Again, more on that uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. So before we read uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, and take a look at them, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, so much for just the opportunity we have to read your word and then pause for time to look at it and consider it. Uh, we pray that you will overcome our weakness of speech and hearing and that your Holy Spirit will work powerfully so that we as your people can grow in holiness, grow in love for you, and be nourished and fed spiritually. Uh, we need uh, the bread of life that you've offered us in your word through Jesus Christ, and we pray then that you will feed us with him. In his name we pray, amen. All right, uh, Exodus 25, beginning at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, uh, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you re shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here, but tonight, I want to underscore as we kind of walk in or get ready to go into the tabernacle and a lot of the details of it, uh, the importance of the tabernacle. It takes up in Exodus 13 chapters, the instruction to build it and then the actual building uh, of it, which is a not so subtle hint that the tabernacle is no small animal in the word of God, and particularly in the Mosaic covenant. It's a big uh, event for Israel. It's a big thing in the life of Israel. And God takes a lot of time to tell Israel specifically how they're supposed to build it and what's supposed to take place at it. It would remain a vital part of the Mosaic Covenant uh, all down through redemptive history for about 1,400 years or so, depending on how you want to date uh, the Bible in the time of Moses. So for 1,400 years through the tabernacle then the temple in Jerusalem after it was destroyed, rebuilt, after the one that Solomon built was destroyed, rebuilt under Ezra and Nehemiah, then sort of... Uh, made to look like the Taj Mahal, as it were, under Herod the Great, that great uh, uh, building that existed in Jesus' day when he came, okay? That, this tabernacle that's being built here and everything that it was about 
is going to last for 1,400 years. So this is a, again, major event in the lives of the Israelites. It was very significant, which is why Jesus was there teaching when he was 12. And oftentimes, even in his ministry, when he was in Jerusalem, he was near the temple and he was teaching in it because that's where sort of uh, Jewish religion had its focal point. I say all this uh, to just alert us about what's going to happen. It's, it's a major event and the tabernacle is incredibly important, meaning all the details of the tabernacle are important as well. And we'll notice that in the coming weeks. I want us to clarify though in our minds what the tabernacle is. It was really helpful to me uh, having grown up with, I don't want to call it almost a theocratic uh, theological perspective foisted on me, which was uh, part of my conversion and the theology that came with it, where I thought that the tabernacle is reduplicated in a church building today, which it's not. And I want to make clear what it is. And this, I remember being in seminary, lights clicking on when my professor walked me through this. So I'm sure all of our lights have already clicked on, but in case they haven't, the tabernacle is the place where God dwelt among his people. That's, it is that. It is a reminder of the Garden of Eden. It does point back. We'll notice that as well. It's a reminder of what the people lost, what Adam and Eve had, kind of what we're all hungering and thirsting for as well, yet to come. It's a little piece of heaven on earth. The tabernacle is not an Old Testament version of our modern day church buildings. I want to make that clear. And there are a lot of people who consider the tabernacle uh, to be an Old Testament version of a church building. But the fact of the matter is the New Testament, the New Testament nowhere uses the language of tabernacle or temple to describe a New Testament church building. You won't find it there because that's not the tabernacle. A church building is not. The church is the temple. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you or you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. So Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church as a whole, saying the church as a whole, you guys in this local congregation are God's temple. He also describes, interestingly enough, that each believer is a temple. So 1 Corinthians 6, 19, just a few chapters later, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And there the you is singular. So he describes the corporate church as the temple in which God dwells. He describes individual believers as the temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. But he does not describe buildings in which God dwells. Remember, God does not dwell and buildings made with hands. And the Old Testament uh, portrayed that, and they were supposed to understand that. The New Testament highlights it. So at the very beginning of this passage, before we get to the furniture, to the tabernacle itself, and to all the building, we have a contribution for it. So before the building starts, we have the Lord saying, I want you to be generous in your giving as your heart is moved. Come bring stuff in. And we're going to, I hope not stretch this too much, but what is going on here is the people are challenged in their generosity. And we learn something about Christian generosity. And then we're going to move this over to the new covenant. Look at uh, what, what this means for us today uh, in some hopefully practical ways. So first of all, I want us to notice that believers are called to generous giving. First of all, the amount of our giving. Second, the recipient of our giving. Third, the motivation of our giving. Then finally, the purpose of our giving. I want to look at those four things. So believers are called to generous giving. First of all, the amount of our giving. Verse two, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. 
The language of contribution is fairly straightforward, just an offering for sacred use, right? A fairly general uh, language. It's really kind of a wide open window for giving in this context. The contribution wasn't defined. The Lord didn't tell them how much they were supposed to give, like a percentage of their income or a percentage of what they had. He just says, look, take a contribution, have the Israelites give. The source for this giving was more than likely uh, the plunder from the land of Egypt. Remember, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians before they left. The Lord caused that to happen. So as it were, not only do you have Pharaoh saying, get out, you have the people saying, we so badly want you to get out, take our stuff and go. <laughs> and the Israelites leave fairly wealthy. Actually, they have, a, they have enough stuff to make a tabernacle and way more. And that there's a lot of gold and silver and bronze going on here. So some people have said, well, the Israelites are stealing. God condones stealing. Remember, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. What does that mean? They didn't get paid for 400 years. So whatever they may have left Egypt with was probably not near the amount they should have been paid after 400 years of slavery. So there was no stealing going on at all. If anything, Pharaoh stole from the, from the Israelites and uh, they walked out with all these goods. As the people came to give day by day, so great was their giving that if you flipped over to Exodus 36, 5, where again, this kind of picks up and describes the process, we read this, the craftsmen said to Moses, these are all the people building stuff. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So you can imagine the situation, the craftsmen, or <laughs> if you've been on a construction site or built anything, you know what happens, right? You have this little job site and all of a sudden pallets show up and <laughs> more stuff comes. And the construction workers, I don't know which one of the foremen was tallying things up, but eventually they're like, uh, we have, we are at capacity, we have enough. <laughs> if this doesn't stop, then in a few days, we are going to have a massive problem on our hands and we're not going to be able to sort through all this stuff. So you better go get Moses and tell him to make an announcement to stop, have people stop bringing. And so the announcement went out and people stopped bringing. They were commanded to stop and they obeyed that. Now, for the Israelites, this was a very specific call to generosity that had to do with building the tabernacle and they more than made good on it. This was a free will offering. As each man is moved in his heart, so let him give. The Israelites later on would be required to give. This is a free will offering. You don't have to give if you don't want to. They would later be required to give Leviticus 27 verses 30 and 32, every tithe of the land. And a tithe means a 10th part. So when you read the word tithe, you can say every 10th part of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. And the Numbers 18, uh, teaching the same thing. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So 10% of all the Israelites were blessed with by the Lord was to be given in support of the Levites. This was a requirement. The tithe is required. This offering here in the tabernacle was not a requirement. Now, they had to give in order for the tabernacle to be accomplished. That was what the Lord was asking them to do, and they gave above and beyond. 
We flip over to the New Testament and we've got nothing really like this. We have, you can make the argument, the giving of the churches of Macedonia to support the believers in Jerusalem, the church is the temple, so they're helping support that temple as it were. You could work with that a little bit. We could work with Acts 4 where believers sold their goods. So if anyone had a need, again, you're trying to support the temple, the new covenant temple, not the old covenant, but the new covenant, the church. And we could work with that. What I want to go in is this direction. In the new covenant, we often wonder, hey, what are we required to do as far as giving goes? Now, we're not in Leviticus 27. I get that. But we're still in a, a passage which has to do with God's call to generosity for a specific purpose. And I want to walk us through this a little bit. And there's a few different views on tithing and offerings. And I want to kind of walk us through those, and then we'll move on to the next points. The one view is Christians, there, there are Christians who believe that the tithe is required and offerings are voluntary. There are Christians who believe that the tithe is a good reference and starting point, but not required, and offerings are free will, of course. And there are Christians who believe that all giving is offerings and the tithe has no abiding relevance for us anymore. Now, those are three different viewpoints. They're not all the viewpoints, but I kind of want to walk us through here and then wrap this up before we go to the next point. So for those who believe that the tithe is required, giving is required of God's people, they'll go back to Genesis 14 and 28, to Abraham and to Jacob. In Genesis 14, 10, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 actually unfolds this quite a bit. You can read, read about that. And then Genesis 28, 22, Jacob vowed, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now remember, the covenant God made with Abram is abiding. It's the covenant to promise we are, we are Abraham's children. The covenant with Moses superseded, except the moral law, which is the ceremonial civil done away with, except the general principles of it. But the Abrahamic covenant, we are members of it. And so they'll go back to Abraham and say, hey, Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Jacob, a member of that covenant, uh, vowed to give a tenth to the Lord. Therefore, we're called to tithe. And remember Jesus in Matthew 23, when he goes after the scribes and the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. In verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Catch, they tithe that. They really did. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Catch what Jesus is saying. You should have been tithing. You are, and you should do that. But you can't neglect justice and mercy. So Jesus makes very clear that tithing is obligatory in his day. He, refer, he affirms the requirements. So people who believe the tithe is required will go to Matthew 23. Now, for those who believe that there's no tithe at all is required, offerings only, They'll flip over the New Testament and, they'll, and you'll discover that there is no commandment for tithing in the New Testament. None. You won't find it there. You'll find a discussion of how tithes operated in the Old Testament, Hebrews 7. You'll find Jesus' words in Matthew 23. But you flip over to the New Covenant, post-resurrection, New Covenant. Not Matthew 23, Old Covenant. Catch that? Matthew 23, New Covenant is still not yet here. So the Pharisees and scribes were required to tithe in obedience to the Mosaic law. But post-resurrection, new covenants here, curtain of the temple's torn. Or post-Pentecost, where we know undoubtedly everybody says, yep, new covenants inaugurated fully, 100%, whatever your timeline is for that. 
after that, you find no clear command for tithing. So people will say, look, there is no command to tithe at all. And since the tithe was commanded in the law of Moses in order to support their Levites so they could serve the Lord in the tabernacle and temple, and the Mosaic covenant has been superseded by the new covenant, and we no longer have Levites serving in a tabernacle and a temple, and the Mosaic law has been superseded, therefore tithing is not required. And then there's a third viewpoint. Tithe uh, required, offerings are free will, no tithe is required, everything's an offering, and then there's the tithe as a guide. And this is maybe more the camp that I fall into, not that that has to mean anything to you. The old covenant tithe is certainly no longer required. However, it serves as a helpful guide. Uh, a general principle, you could argue, for a minimum of what we should give to support the Lord and his kingdom. We no longer have priests serving in the tabernacle, but now we do have pastors and evangelists and church planters and missionaries like uh, the Hooksimas here this morning and church teachers and seminary laboring in the church, which is the new covenant temple, uh, and their work is done so that God can dwell within the church and within his people, and God can be in the midst of his people. So I take a tithe to be useful minimum of what I should be giving to the Lord and anything above and beyond that regarding as a free will offering. But, and everyone just needs to figure this out for themselves. Wherever we go, right, freedom of conscience. Uh, it doesn't matter what I think or what I believe. What matters is that you search the scriptures and you determine, Lord, how would you have me? What am I required to do with my money? How am I to be generous for your kingdom? What does that look like? And as you search the scriptures, you discover I'm bound to this by my conscience because this is what the word of God teaches. I just threw out three different ideas of that. And again, Christians will believe all three ideas and you can make great, great biblical arguments for all three of those. Although the tithe is required, that in my mind, that's a more challenging one as in this is required of you. I, I think that's a more challenging biblical argument. But again, Christians believe it. Now, what do I, I want to do this with it? The giving of money is an incredibly spiritual event. How we handle money says a lot about our spiritual well-being. Money can be used for great purposes and stewarded wisely, or it can drown our faith. I want to say that again. Money can be used for great purposes and stewarded wisely, or it can literally drown our faith. Billy Graham said it this way, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. Why did he say that? That's how big money is. Whether we like it or not, that's how big money is to our hearts. Maybe not to our minds, but, but to our hearts it is. That's why Jesus could say authoritatively, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he didn't say, wherever you put your heart, you'll spend your money. He said, wherever you spend your money, your heart will follow right in line. Very important, beloved. Where we spend our money, our hearts will follow that and will be engaged in it. And we'll, Randy Alcorn said this, I've heard people say, I want, to, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and the poor and your heart will follow. Giving is an incredibly spirit, uh, is a spiritual exercise, beloved. It was in the days of Israel. He's talking about their hearts. We'll get that in just a moment. It is in our day. It always has been. How people spend their money will tell you where their hearts are, where their hearts are going to be. Giving to the work of the Lord is important for our hearts. So, 
Second thing, the amount of our giving, that might have been a stretch, but I wanted to at least give us a little bit of a lay of the land in the new covenant, how we can work through this. The recipient of our giving is what I want us to notice next, verse two. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Notice the language that they take for me a contribution and that you shall receive the contribution for me. This is the Lord speaking. So the situation, Moses comes down from the mountain, he's gotten these instructions from the Lord. He tells the Israelites, look, you guys all got to start bringing stuff. Now, this would have been really tempting. And Moses said, you'll give as much as you think of Moses. I don't like Moses. He's not a great leader. I don't like the elders of the Israelites. I don't really appreciate them much. And it's possible to give or not give, or I do love them, or I want to impress them. Now, what the Lord makes clear is, I want you to take up a contribution for me. This is not for Moses. This is not for anyone else other than me, the Lord. And this informs our giving as uh, believers. Even to this day, it's possible for us to give for wrong reasons, beloved. Uh, take, for example, giving to ourselves. It's possible to give in such a way as to be praised by men. Remember, that's what the Pharisees did. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6 says, look, when you give your alms, don't do it to be praised. Don't sound a trumpet for these things in prayers and giving, just to give. It's possible that when we give, we're actually not giving it to the Lord. We're giving ourselves a gift because we're giving it in order to be noticed, in order to be praised, not for the work of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, I think this is a famous story, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but there was a gardener that loved his king. And so he grew this incredibly big carrot. And he said, I'm going to take this carrot to my king because I love my king. And the king saw how much this gardener, who was one of his subjects, loved him. And delighted to give him the carrot, he gave him a bunch of land. And the guy went out, he was amazed. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who watched this and said, look, here, if you get land for a carrot, <laughs> what do you get for a horse? And so he brought this horse to the king. And when he brought the horse to the king, the king said, thank you, you can go now. And the nobleman left confused. And the king said, let me clarify. The gardener gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. In other words, you want something from me. Beloved, we can miss this in our giving that our giving is to be unto the Lord. Now this takes giving and puts it in the world of delight and joy rather than manipulation and control and heartache and headache. Because if you know how things go oftentimes, we can give to a cause, we can give to people, we can give to help things, and it doesn't turn out how we'd like it. But if we're giving to the Lord, we can make peace with it. I gave that to the Lord, given what I knew at the time. I gave in good conscience. I gave because I love the Lord and he has been so incredibly generous and gracious to me. And after we give, we give to the Lord. We're at peace with this. We say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity. And on we go. And then when we have opportunity again, we walk through the same process. But a passage like this puts giving on a higher plane, an altogether different level. When we give, we're giving to the Lord. And really, we're just, everything belongs to the Lord. 
Everything we have is from him. I mean, the, Lord, the Lord could have said, hey, it's a requirement. You have to give me 90%. <laughs> then it would have paid off to be a Levite, right? Like that would, been, that would have been the chosen profession. But he could have done that. In the Old Testament Israel, 10% support him. In the New Covenant, however you want to dice that out, we give a portion of what we have from God. But it's just a portion. And God asks us to give it to him. Third thing I want us to notice here is the motivation for our giving. And this really stands out. Verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. The language for every man whose heart moves him is literally from every man who is willing or compelled with his heart. So God's dealing with the heart. And the language here is pretty strong. From someone who from the heart is compelled, it's, it's more than just willing, but compelled from the heart to give. The Lord is looking for givers to support his kingdom who are willing and compelled, not begrudging givers, but willing givers. Now, if you're an Israelite and you're having to figure out, look, the Lord asked for gold, silver, bronze, right? The list from verses like three to seven, gold, silver, bronze, fine linens. We got a bunch of leather there for making the tabernacle, the curtains. We've got a bunch of stones. You're walking through all this stuff and you're looking at what you have in your pile and as you think about what you're supposed to give from the heart, what do you have to reckon with? How did I get this stuff in the first place? When did this happen, right? Oh, <laughs> oh, I, I didn't do a thing for this stuff. Actually, I came out of Egypt through the blood of the lamb. And everything I have is because the Lord worked out these 10 plagues and the Passover. We got to plunder the Egyptians. We came out. Everything I have right now at my disposal is given to me 100% freely. It all came from God. And so we'd have to reckon with what is my response going to be to God's grace then if you're an Israelite, and you've got to decide what to give. How thankful am I to no longer be a slave in Egypt? How thankful am I that God brought me out? How thankful am I that in my generation, previous generations didn't have this blessing, they were still in slavery, but in my generation, we got to come out and have a lot of stuff at our disposal. This is incredible. How thankful am I for that? So the Israelites would have had to reckon with their response to God's generosity. What is my response to grace? Does grace make me stingy? Or does grace make me gracious and generous? That's what they'd have to work through in their own hearts. Now in the new covenant, our giving is to be done with a cheerful heart as well. It's heart work. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Again, there's the heart language, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that is so explicit. You can take that all the way to the bank. New covenant teaching on offerings. Whatever we may say about the tithe, this regarding our giving is so crystal clear. We're to be a people who in our hearts have decided this is how we're going to respond to God's grace. And we have even greater motivation to give than the Israelites did. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, just a chapter before. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, how's that for motivation? Jesus became poor so we could have heavenly riches. Now, it probably doesn't strike us. Maybe it doesn't. I hope it does. Just how incredible it was that Jesus became poor. If you've... If you're born into the world poor and you live your whole life poor, 
You don't know what you're missing. But if you've ever seen somebody like, remember in 2008, nine, in, in our time, I think you could probably go back to the late 20s when the depression hit. Remember when a lot of wealthy business people became broke within a matter of, millionaires and billionaires went to negative numbers in a matter of months. The effect that that had on them, some of them committed suicide. They couldn't handle it. When you have that kind of wealth and power and comfort and prestige and security, and you lose it, that is a life soul changer. Jesus was wealthy in heaven. He had all the praise and the glory, the wealth of the nations at his disposal. He became poor, dirt poor, born in a manger, feeding trough to a poor family. Got to offer the poor person's offering for this son. And he ministered how? In poverty. When he died, what inheritance did he have to leave his disciples? <laughs> they divided up my cloak. <laughs> That's about all we got here. Father, this is incredible. Why did he do this? So we could become rich. What, meaning what? Rich in, no, not rich in this life. Heavenly spiritual riches. Remember the meek will inherit the earth? I just, it's one of my favorite beatitudes. <laughs> the meek, those who have new hearts. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ who are meek like him will inherit the entire world. But that's just an earthly, physical blessing. We'll inherit all of his spiritual blessings. We'll get to be in heaven with him, beloved. Jesus Christ became that poor. He did all that for us so that we could be rich. Now, how does that inform our giving? It just transforms all of it. <laughs> what, are, what is money? What are possessions? The abundance of one's life does not consist in what? Possessions or money. Tell that to the average person in Pella who doesn't believe and they'll have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. Tell that to an American capitalist who's made it big in business. Hard to wrap our minds around it. Jesus said it nonetheless. The abundance of one's life, the gist, the identity of one's life and soul does not consist in how much stuff we have. And then finally, the purpose of our giving. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So, of all the things, again, the gold, silver, bronze, the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, the fine twine linen, the goat's hair, ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil, spices, stones, all these things were brought in service to the building of the tabernacle. The end goal was that the tabernacle could be built and God could dwell with his people. The glory could come down, Exodus 40, way at the end of the uh, chapter. That's the goal. So he can be with his people and dwell with them. Now, if you remember the Garden of Eden, it was a place where God dwelt with his people. And that dwelling had largely been lost. The tabernacle is a reinstituting of that in, in, in some form, where God is now going to dwell with his people again. Only it's a different dwelling because you can't go all the way in. There's cherubim guarding the entrance, right, over the Ark of the Covenant, just like at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. One guy gets to go in once a year, and he better bring blood because we've got to have atonement for sin in order to approach God in all of his glory. So the tabernacle is a little taste of the Garden of Eden. And the vehicle by which God would come to dwell with his people is quite a lowly vehicle. You got a tent. Now, this is the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's choosing to dwell with his wilderness walking people in a tent. This is not some incredible dwelling. The inside's pretty amazing, but it's just a tent at best. 
He chose to dwell in a tent. One day God would come down in another lowly form, making his own tent. Now this is fascinating when you turn to John 1.14, a passage we love. You know exactly where I'm going, but it is fascinating that John says the word became flesh and he tented, he tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that tabernacle that the Israelites are going to spend a lot of time building, that they're going to carry around, tear down, reassemble, (laughs) tear down, reassemble, had to do with what? God's going to come and dwell in the midst of his people, but it's going to be in a way that's going to boggle folks' minds because he's going to come in flesh and tent among us. But when this happens, he's not going to come with a tabernacle that'll be built from plunder from the Egyptians. The tabernacle that comes when Jesus comes wasn't made with human hands. It wasn't made with mere gold and silver and leather and stone. The tabernacle was made by God of the finest quality, his only begotten son. This is a tabernacle that has never been seen before. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality that the tabernacle pointed to, which is why he referred to his own body as the temple. Remember that? Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. Everybody thought, huh, he must have some construction methods that we're not aware of. That's not possible. (laughs) And he was referring to his own body. He's the temple. He's the tabernacle. And let me just conclude with this. The purpose of our giving then new covenant, what is it? To make much of Jesus Christ. When the Israelites brought their goods in to make the tabernacle, what were they making much of? Jesus, the Messiah. They didn't know it in all of its fullness like we do now. They didn't have John 1.14. Jesus hadn't come yet. They were making much of Christ and the way of salvation. Our giving, what's the purpose of it? To make much of Jesus Christ. Ministries which make much of Christ. People who make much of Christ. However we want to give. Our goal, one of our purposes in giving is that Christ would be made much of. He's the true tabernacle. And the goal is that people can experience the delight and the beauty of having God dwell with them in the church through Jesus Christ. Let me just finish by saying this. There are around 2,000 verses in the Bible about money. If you scan through Jesus' teaching on money, you'll discover he had a lot to say about it. I think one person mentioned like one out of every 12 or 13 verses in the New Testament has to do with money. Money's that big of an issue. Jesus taught about it a lot. Look at his parables. Money is all through it. How do you spend it? How do I spend it? Are our hearts inclined to give to the Lord. What's our motivation for giving? Are we enamored with God's grace? Because the Lord doesn't want us, he's not after. Remember the the widow came in, she gave all, right? Lots of rich people came in, let's say they gave their millions. The widow put in about a dollar. And Jesus says, I want you to notice something about what she did. She gave way more. Beloved, I don't want to talk about percentages, any of this stuff. Here's the issue for all of us as we try and live under the word. What's going on in our hearts? That's what the Lord's concerned about for the Israelites. It's what Jesus is concerned about for us. Is money an idol for us? If it is, we've got to work through it. And when we work through it, we'll discover that we're no longer slaves to money, 
But money is something that we can use for God's glory and to make much of Jesus. And that is a lot of joy. Let's pray.